Hey church family, this is Tyler Birch, one of the ministers here at Anacortes Christian Church. I want to take a second and thank you for joining us today. We know that life is busy, and there's a lot of other things that we could be spending our time doing, so thank you. We hope that this podcast serves as a tool for you to grow closer with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. If you have questions about ACC, like who we are, where we're located, and other key information about this incredible body of believers, check out our website, anacortischristian.church. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Welcome to my rooftop. Um, I'm up here on my roof, and I want to welcome you. Um, The significance, the reason I'm up here is partially because the significance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I couldn't just do a message uh, cooped up in my office or indoors. I felt like you got to do something, got to get out. And so um, I'm recording part of the service from up here. And that's partially because of the symbolism of what a new day, the dawn of a new spring day represents, the, a new life out of death. It represents in many ways that Jesus was raised from the dead, physically a new creation as the first fruits or the firstborn of all creation, which means that what we see in Jesus on that first Easter Sunday is also our future hope. It's a hope we have to look forward to, a hope of resurrection. As the song says, I cannot tell, but this I know, all flesh will see his glory and skies will burst as all creation sings. The sun will rise on one eternal morning when Christ, the savior of the world, is Lord and King. But there's another reason that I wanted to give this message from my rooftop this morning. And that's because we're not all together today. We're scattered throughout the community and some probably of you are far outside of our community. And so I felt like if I could get up here and get a bird's eye view, maybe I could get a sense that we're not so far apart after all. You know, if I zoom out and I look out there, I can see Um, maybe some reminder that we're all together, really. We're all here together. We're not so far apart. We're sharing in this thing together. You see, suffering and death, in all their various forms, disrupts our normal. All suffering involves a stripping away or removal of the things that we take for granted or even depend upon to live. Now, what's ironic about this situation today is that traditionally, you know, many Christians in the church have been celebrating Lent for the last 40 days. And part of what they do at Lent is, you know, we take a season where we actually strip something away from our lives intentionally. And this, in most cases, it might be chocolate or coffee or social media or television or something like that. But the idea is that on Easter that identification with some element of suffering or death is removed and everything is restored. The church comes together, we pull out all the stops, and we have this grand Easter celebration of the resurrection. But this time is unique because it's almost like we've been forced into a Lent season where we've been stripped away. Suffering and death have stripped away, to some extent, our ability to be together, to have community, to be social. And for many It's stripping away their health. But unlike other seasons, this time the Lent continues through Easter. We don't get to lay it aside. And even though for many of us this season maybe hasn't really involved a lot of what we would call suffering, others maybe so, symbolically, as you look out this morning, what do you see? There's almost an eerie quietness, those mostly empty streets of quarantine, and the rising sun. The reminder that death has some power and dominion over our lives. It sweeps in and it can change our routine on a dime. It has the ability to control us somewhat. And the reminder of the death of death. And these things, as we look out over our community right now, where we're all at, we hold these two things in tension. And the question is, which one is going to define our lives the most? 
I heard a quote this week from N.T. Wright on a little video Zoom meeting he had with someone, and he said, every aspect of death, whether it is the sin that leads to death or the death that comes from sickness, every aspect of death is a sneer in the face of God. It's a way of saying, your creation doesn't really work. God will not forever be mocked by that sneer. The gospel is rooted in the promise to put everything right at last. It then comes into focus in Jesus, through whom God does the putting right up close and personal. And then the believing in the gospel for us today is to believe that something has happened in Jesus as a result of which the world is now a different place. Even though I'm still a sinner, even though I'm still heading for death, In the spirit, I'm allowed to live in that overlapping of the ages. And so the big question is, how does the resurrection of Jesus change the way I live, especially in these current times, in light of this uncertainty and suffering? And with that, I'd like to turn to our passage for today. Okay, before we get into our passage for the day, I just want to add a quick note uh, for the purpose of giving tithes and offerings on our website. Um, There is a link there that makes it extremely easy to give, and we sure do appreciate your continued um, generosity and giving during this time. And, And even just beyond that, whether that's something you don't even think you can do right now, just the challenge to... In times of uncertainty, believe in a God of abundance and trust in him. The link to that site um, where you can give is anacorteschristian.church. It's anacorteschristian.church. Or you can just go to our website and the top right hand of the menu is give. You can click on that. Now you can always um, bring a check by the office, uh, mail it in, and it will get to us somehow. So um, also remember at the end of the service, we're going to be taking communion together. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. So if you want to prepare that, if you want to participate with us in that, you can get some bread and a cup with uh, preferably some grape juice. But if you don't have grape juice, uh, you can improvise and you can still share in that meaningful communion time with us. The scripture we're about to read is 1 Peter 1, 3-9. And just a little backdrop, Peter was one of the very first people to follow Jesus. Okay, he was kind of a big shot all along the way. He was humbled and then went through an incredible transformation because of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, Peter's writing about two decades after the resurrection to a group of churches and his purpose for writing is that these churches are going through persecution. They're going through suffering. They're experiencing hardships in the form of probably displacement, ridicule, isolation, criticism, and in some cases even being put to death. And so Peter is no stranger to suffering. And you're going to hear some interesting things in this passage about having extreme joy in the midst of that. And are we talking about someone who doesn't know what they're talking about? No, this is, this is a man who's very familiar with the realities of suffering and ended up giving his life uh, for what he believed, suffering and dying for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. And so writing to this church of people who are dealing with that, the first thing he does, where he goes to first and foremost is the empty tomb, okay, the resurrection It's all right here, he says. And so, let's read 1 Peter 1, 3-9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you, have, are, you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So let's pray for a moment. Father, on this Easter morning, there's a promise of hope. A hope through the resurrection of the dead to a, a future inheritance, something that does not fade or change or perish, even though we do. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us the gravity of our need for this hope, but also the joy that can come with it and make it real in our lives today. It's in Jesus name I pray. Amen. All right. So what does resurrection give us? In the midst of this time, new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an eternal inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And somehow that knowledge is supposed to give us the ability to deal with trials and suffering in a completely different way. So let's just investigate these in turn a little bit. Let's look at the idea of new birth. First of all, it's easy to take the idea of Christ's resurrection for granted. Okay, maybe you grew up believing in the resurrection. Maybe you don't believe in the resurrection. Maybe you've believed it, but you've questioned things. And I've preached before on um, the rational believability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and there's lots of YouTube videos and resources out there that can um, talk all about, you know, you can study that on your own. I encourage you to, but I'm not going to go there with this message today. But if you've been a Christian for a while, you can get used to this idea, but you got to remember that for the early believers, and remember, Peter was one of those first apostles to come to the empty tomb. This event was absolutely earth shattering. I mean, you got to consider what actually happened on Good Friday. The apostles are cowering. They're scattered. Peter denied Jesus three times, kind of revealing that even though he tried to prove himself over and over again, really what his motivations had been. And, you know, he wanted to be the guy that rode Jesus's train all the way to the top. And when it looked like everything was falling apart, self-preservation was his ultimate hope. Okay. And so, and so he denied Jesus and the apostles, they all find themselves in a room cowering in fear, not knowing what they're going to do next. And then something happens. Okay. Saturday, Christianity is not a thing. Okay. The Jesus movement is dead. Nobody is a Jesus follower when the leader dies. Okay. So on Sunday, something happens, the result of which as N.T. Wright put it, the world is now a different place. Okay, this movement came bursting into existence. And all of a sudden, this cowering, denying Peter is able to go into places boldly proclaiming these truths to the very people who put Jesus to death without fear, even, even challenging them. I mean, something happened that utterly transformed these people's lives. There was an utter paradigm shift. Resurrection was not what they expected. And so the effect of it is not simply, oh, I guess people can rise from the dead. No, it was a paradigm shift. In other words, what the resurrection gives us is a completely new mode of existence. What they were seeing in the risen Jesus, they came to understand as God's first installment of his new creation. In other words, Jesus was not just resuscitated like Lazarus. Okay. No, he didn't come back from death. He went through death, defeated it and came out the other side immortal, you know, imperishable. He came out with a physical body yet seemed to be unbound by the laws of space and time. He could appear and disappear and show up on the other side of a wall and a closed door and so on. He said, I'm not a ghost. Touch me and see. And he ate and drank in the presence of his followers. He bore the marks of his wounds, of his earlier suffering. And yet he is now immune to decay and sickness and death. In other words, 
What God had been promising to do to the whole world, setting everything right, restoring Eden, bringing heaven on earth, right? He did first in Jesus. So standing before them was the first installment of our world's future. And, and when that is so concretely solidified in your view, your understanding, your view of the whole world changes. <clears throat> so what that mean for someone like Peter? It meant that our world is going somewhere. History has a future destination. And this is what that destination looks like. The, the person of Jesus Christ now. The results are a paradigm shift for my entire understanding behind my existence, my future, my understanding of the universe, God, my place in the world, and in particular, how I respond now to the tyranny of death and suffering. The only adequate way of describing such a shift in existence is new birth. And that's not all that the new birth means theologically. You know, it's a common term, but, and we'll come back to that in a little bit, but that picture of dying to a particular lifestyle, to a particular reality, a way of being all of my preloaded assumptions about the world and myself and how I fit into it and where it's all going and being born into a, a new way of thinking, a new family, a new way of existing, a new reality. It's, it's a new birth. And that gives us something that gives us something that is absolutely vital for our existence. That something is called hope. And Peter calls it a living hope because it's not just a hope in a past event. No, it's a hope that has ongoing power to bring new birth and transformation into a person's life. And into every situation today, it's a living hope. And so I just want to pause for a moment <clears throat> and ask us to consider whether we have this hope, whether we're allowing it to shape our lives. Is resurrection the paradigm that has altered and changed your life? Do you see the sunrise or just the empty streets? I want to recommend two books for you today. One is a book called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. Surprised by Hope. It's a book about the resurrection and understanding all of this paradigm shift and how it affects every facet of our lives. And for me, uh, I would confidently say that aside from the Bible, no other book has changed my life as much as Surprised by Hope, this book about the resurrection. And I'm not exaggerating one bit when I say that. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. The other book that I would recommend is a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Uh, Viktor Frankl is not a Christ follower. He's a very educated psychiatrist, psychologist who survived the concentration camps and the Holocaust. And we're going to come, come to that in a moment, but I'll tell you why I, I recommend his book in just a little bit. First, I mentioned that hope is essential for human existence. Okay. That's not an exaggeration. When Peter says that resurrection gives us a new birth into a living hope, we're not just talking about some fluffy pie in the sky, happy term that tends to get overused and can mean a lot of different things in our culture today. You know, when people talk about hope, well, hope in what? You got to have hope, right? Well, if you ask the question, what makes human beings different from all the other members of the animal kingdom? What makes us different from animals. There's a lot of similarities, but what makes us different? One of the things that sets us apart is that we thrive on and even depend upon hope for existence. By contrast, take for example, the coyote. Um, what drives its existence? What keeps it going? Is it the goals that it sets for its future? Not as far as we know, right? Is it its vision for retirement? Is it the legacy that it's going to leave for its children and grandchildren? No, right? It's, it's instinct. It's the hunt. It's the will to survive. And that'll come at all costs. Even sometimes, even if that means turning on 
one of its own kind or its own pack in order to survive. I know wolves will do that and so on. By contrast, humans are motivated by hopes, goals, and future prospects. And we understand when and why animals act the way they do, but for some reason we all seem to understand and agree that for humans to act like animals in that way is not okay. We seem to think that that's wrong. Suffering and death, by definition, are a stripping away of the things that we root our hopes in. Okay? Suffering and death are a stripping away of the things we root our hopes in. And the result, what happens, there's two possible outcomes of that. One is we tend to either wither up and become withdrawn and isolated and depressed. Or the human being reverts back into an animal-like nature. And Viktor Frankl is one who spelled this out in his book. I read his book uh, this, this week, actually. Not the whole thing, but two-thirds of it or so. But Peter knows what he's doing when he begins a letter to a community that's experiencing suffering and starts off with a power sentence about an imperishable hope because he knows what most psychiatrists and psychologists today will attest to, that in the face of suffering that takes away our hopes, the thing you need the most is hope. And Viktor Frankl knew this. Again, he was a psychiatrist who survived the concentration camps in World War II, particularly in Dachau. And he went through immense suffering. The first half of his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, is all about chronicling his actual experience. And now I have to say, I, I watched Schindler's List. Okay, I read some things about the Holocaust. I'd heard stories, but until I read his account, um, and I probably still don't fully understand, but I never fully grasped to the extent that I do now, the horrors, okay, the, the depth of suffering that people were made to endure. Okay, it's just incredible. And how Viktor Frankl got through was, was he chose to apply himself objectively to it as a psychiatrist and analyze it and study it. Uh, he studied his own experiences and those of others uh, in the camp. And, and one of the surprising things he says, and in light of all that horrible human evil that they endured, one of the things he says is that suffering is relative. Okay. What, what changes, what impacts a person is not necessarily how big the suffering is. It's what they do with it internally. Okay. He, he likens it to a gas chamber. Um, you know, it's a fitting analogy, but, but he says, if you've got a container and you pour gas into it, the gas is going to evenly disperse and fill that container, no matter what, no matter how big the size of the chamber is. And so his quote is "Thus, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Therefore the size of human suffering is absolutely relative. He says, and so as we think about today, most of us who are not ill right now would hardly call this inconvenience suffering. Okay, maybe people are facing losing um, their jobs or their income, and you might qualify that as suffering in some way, but we like to think we're, you know, bigger than that. And yet it represents, it, excuse me, it presents us both with challenges and opportunities to respond to our situation in much the same way. Let me explain that. Frankel observed that it's not the external physical circumstances of the camp that determined the outcome for many people. Okay. He said, even though conditions such as lack of sleep, insufficient food, and various mental stresses may suggest that the inmates were bound to react in certain ways. In the final analysis, it becomes clear and this is important, that the sort of person a prisoner became was the result of an inner decision, an inner decision, and not the result of camp influences alone. It was an inner, internal influence in the camp, in a person. And those influences, what would happen internally, he says, two, two major things. One, the degradation of a, of a self and the self-image of a person. But also the loss of hope. 
the loss of hope. And when that happened, he observed two things. People would either, again, act like animals, or they would withdraw and become like zombies. At the beginning of the book, he talks about how the reason that Holocaust survivors don't typically like to talk about their experiences for the average person is not so much the horrors that they endured, but rather the kind of person they became. That sounds kind of accusatory, but this is coming from his own words. He says that the average survivor was the one who had lost all scruples in their fight for existence. They were prepared to use every means, honest and otherwise, even brutal force, theft, and betrayal of their friends in order to save themselves. And he says, we who have come back might like to tell ourselves and others that it was because of lucky chances and miracles that we survived. But he says, deep down, we know it's because the best of us did not return. We who have come out of this came out because the best of us did not make it. Those who lost hope and did not succumb to that animal nature became withdrawn, lost in fantasies of the past, numb and would ultimately perish. He told a story of one man who had a dream and in that dream, he was told that the war was going to end in three months on March 30th. Okay, March 30th. So his hope was rooted in March 30th, and that drove him forward. But as the day drew nearer, it looked less and less like there were any signs that the war was going to be over by that point. And so on March 29th, the man developed a fever. On March 30th, he was bedridden. On March 31st, he was dead. And the big killer is the loss of hope. Today we find ourselves more isolated than usual. When that happens, statistically, drug and alcohol addiction and abuse increase. Depression increases. This is no small message for our time. The killer is the loss of hope. Frankl wrote that it was the inability to see an end of that kind of existence, to have no future to live for, nothing to aim at. He said the prisoner who had lost faith in, in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. And by contrast, those who could hold on to something, even small things, the hope of being able to be a baker again or to play musical instru instruments again, or in Frankl's case, to be able to exercise his practice as a psychiatrist again and to teach people. These are the things that drove them forward because they had a hope that transcended their present suffering, their current circumstances. So here's what we need to realize. Frankel observed that it was the internal factors, not external, that determined a person's fate through suffering. And here's his warning for us. His warning is this. We are all going to experience the same thing. The same factors. Okay. The difference is that in a concentration camp, all of those hopes being stripped away is accelerated and sped up and condensed and concentrated into a distilled form, but everyone over time will experience isolation, the loss of a home, the loss of our roots, the loss of relationships, the loss of our health, the inability to go where we once could eat what we thought we could, um, you know, do the things we'd like to do. We're all going to continually experience loss of the things that we can root our hopes in until finally we die. And so that's his warning for us is every one of us is going to experience this. And so it's a serious question. What is your hope? Your answer will determine. And in the end, what kind of a person you will be and are becoming eternally. Peter tells us that because of Christ's resurrection, you can be born into a life of living for a hope that will outlast your suffering. 
and even give new meaning to your suffering. What is that hope? An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What is this inheritance? It's a big topic, but basically, it's everything. It's everything in God's creation. You've got, a, you've got a bank account, okay? You've got money in the bank, or maybe more fitting would be you've got a deed waiting for you, a legacy, an inheritance, okay? Page one of the Bible, God's intended goal for his creation is that mankind would have dominion over everything from the birds in the air to the fish in the sea and everything in between, okay? Be- because we didn't trust We didn't trust God. We didn't trust one another. We chose to take for ourselves. We chose to aspire to what we thought we were lacking. And and we chose to exploit people for money, sex, and power. We've lost the ability to enjoy and, and experience the richness that we were created for. Part of being born again means being reborn or adopted into a new family household As fellow heirs of the father's estate, this father owns it all and plans to give it all to his kids. Okay. First Corinthians 3, 21, let no one boast in men for all things are yours. Okay. Daniel 7, 27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the most high. Revelation 5, 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay. This is our inheritance, right? And notice he says on the earth. All right. When Peter writes that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, he doesn't mean that it's something you'll get when you die and go to heaven someday. Okay, that's not resurrection and that's not resurrection hope. No, resurrection is not a way of saying go to heaven when you die. Okay, notice he says the inheritance will come down. It's, it will be revealed in the last time when Christ returns. Okay, the Christian hope, contrary to what I was taught when I grew up in the church, is not to go to heaven for eternity. Okay? As N.T. Wright put it, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Okay? There's, there's, a, there's a waypoint. There's a resting stop where some part of our being, our spirit, is resting in God's presence when, he, when we die. But we're doing that in anticipation of the day when we're going to be restored to a body and, and live a physical resurrected existence that is what God intended for his creation to be. That's the hope. Resurrection means that God has a goal, a plan, and a future rescue, restoration, and transformation of this world. Okay, Romans 8 says that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, just as the people of God will, just as Jesus is. Okay, Christ, the first fruits. Okay, he's a first installment. Then at his coming, those who belong to him. Okay, so... Here's why this matters. Okay. Uh, here's why this matters. Let, consider for a moment this passage in Colossians where Paul is talking to household units and he addresses parents, marriages, and then children and parents. And then, and then finally the servants or the slaves of the household. And, and now I know some people have issues with, with the whole slavery thing. Know this, that, that for one, slavery in the Bible is nothing like what we think of when we think of slavery, but also Uh, Paul holds an extremely esteemed view of those who are in a position of slavery. Uh, You know, he's the one who wrote that it's Christ who took the form of a slave and emptied himself in obedience unto death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him above every other name. Okay. So, so we're talking about people that are held in extremely high regard. Okay. He says, slaves, Obey your masters in everything, not while being watched as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, accomplish it from the soul as to the Lord and not to people, 
And this is important. Because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Okay? Serve the Lord Christ. For the one who does wrong will receive back whatever wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, do you follow this? Do you know what he's saying by this? Okay? Why should you care about the quality of your work? Why should your work matter? Here's what resurrection does to us, okay? Suddenly, work matters. Servitude matters. Why? Because you are working, what you're working on, what you're working for is your future inheritance, okay? It's God's treasured creation to be one day handed over to you to manage as his heir, now, now, I don't know fully what that looks like in every circumstance. I mean, a lot of work is, is broken and kind of exploitative and abusive. And, and, and I don't know how that's going to look or how it's going to be redeemed. What the idea is what you do now, your mindset over your work should be challenged by resurrection because everything about how you conduct yourselves towards your job and other people and your family and your life, you are honoring or dishonoring your future inheritance. It's yours. Okay. So what are you going to do with it? And so I've heard people say, you know, some people say that our future is, you know, resurrection to this world. Some people say it's off in a spiritual heaven somewhere. That's by the way, Plato and paganism, not the Bible. Um, but, you know, I don't really care as long. I just know it's going to be good and I'm going to love it. And that's all that matters to me. Well, here's the problem with that. Okay. If you believe that this world's final end destination is destruction and that the end goal of the Christian life is to evacuate and jump ship, then you may tell yourself that you're doing your labor as unto the Lord. And you might try to work hard, but at the end of the day, all that your work on this earth ever amounts to is polishing the doorknobs of the Titanic. Or as N.T. Wright would put it, greasing the gears on a machine that's going to roll off a cliff. Okay, that's not the picture, right? Paul writes at the end of his um, big opus on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, he concludes not by saying, therefore, because of this great hope, sit back, relax, because you know that, you know, you can wait for this good thing to happen. No, he says, be steadfast and immovable, abounding, overflowing with abundance um, in the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It matters. The world matters. Your work matters. Your labor matters. Your family matters. All of it matters eternally. Okay. Um, just to give one more little analogy, Mark shared with this me some shared this with me uh, some years ago. You, you know, imagine a reality TV show where you've got a, a, a billionaire who hires a contractor to build a house. And this contractor, maybe he's kind of poor, he's kind of down and out, and, and this house is pretty fancy. And so all along the way, what the audience knows that the contractor doesn't know is that this billionaire plans to hand the keys to this house over to the builder. And so the question all along the way is, hey, when things get tough or the math doesn't add up or the, you know, the time constraints set in, is he going to cut corners? Is he going to go cheap? Is he going to sacrifice quality? Is he going to slack off on the job? What's he going to do with it? And then the big aha moment, the big reveal at the end of the show would be when the builder, when, when, the, when the owner hands the keys over to the builder and says, all right, welcome to your new home. And suddenly the big question on his mind is besides being overwhelmed, perhaps with gratitude is would I have done things the way I did if I had known that I was working on my inheritance? Okay, that's the impact, the difference that resurrection makes in our world. Our work is worship. And it can be in how we conduct it. Okay. Paul warns that the one who does wrong will receive back whatever wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. In other words, in some form or another, if you are careless, then you will be trusted with less under your care. But if you care, you will be given more to care for. That's what I think it means. 
And he says there's no partiality. We're not, it doesn't matter if you're the billionaire or a slave. What matters to God is how you care, how you serve, and even how you suffer. Resurrection gives new meaning to our suffering. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter is saying that it is impossible to have a deep or excuse me, that it is possible, excuse me, he's saying it is possible to have a deep joy even in the midst of sorrow and suffering. And that kind of joy is not just some sort of optimistic, hey, turn that smile upside down, right? No, it's not just wishful thinking. As Christians, there is still grief. You've had to suffer grief through all kinds of trials. We're not downplaying the grieving. All right, we still mourn and experience pain. Jesus himself showed up at the tomb of Lazarus, four days dead, and he grieved and he mourned and he took in the sorrow and bore the sorrow of, of, his, of the sisters, the family, Mary and Martha, and the loss of his friend, knowing full well that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Okay, so Christian joy does not discount the grieving of suffering. But there's purpose in it. There's purpose in our suffering. As Tim Mackey put it, suffering is like an unwelcome teacher. We are better for the wisdom that it brings, even though it's painful to endure. And like that gold in a refining fire, it burns things away from us and it hurts it burns away those impurities that float to the surface. It even melts the gold and changes its shape so that it's something different entirely. But it's purified. It's, it's, it's rid of the things that make it less than gold. And that's our life. Suffering rids us of the things that we need to hold on to, to have life. And it hurts. But if Jesus is truly raised from the dead, then we can know this. God will always take the suffering that's meant to be your destruction. And in Christ, he'll turn it around and twist it unto your ultimate salvation. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the way we suffer defines whether we're saved. We're talking about the future final salvation the ultimate perfection of his people, the final liberation and resurrection. Our suffering, God always twists into something good, even though we don't always see what that might be in the moment. I'm hearing stories right now of marriages that are being renewed because of this quarantine. Of families dealing with the stresses of having everyone at home and, you know, the kids get kind of stir crazy and a lot of true colors start to show. But you know what? When our true colors start to show, we suddenly know what needs to change. We know what we have to deal with. We know how to move forward and we have an opportunity there, right? I've got to spend more time enjoying small moments that I might otherwise miss out on. And I pray I pray for you, church, and for myself that when this is all over, we would not go back to being exactly as we were before this. I would pray that this suffering, as minor or major as it may be, yields something beautiful and good. Most importantly, resurrection hope gives us not just an inheritance, but a love. Though you do not see him, you love him. He says, it gives us Jesus himself. We're about to have communion right now, which represents the body and blood of Jesus given for us on the cross. And it represents the closeness and the intimacy that we have with Christ 
and as a new resurrected family with one another. In Jesus, God came down to the world he created, his world that groans to be liberated, and he fully absorbed all the mess that we've made of it. Jesus came to identify with you and I in our suffering, in our various trials. He wept with Mary and Martha at the tomb. He absorbed the pain and he experienced it and felt it. He didn't just brush it off. And on the cross, he absorbed all of our failure, all of my animalistic tendencies to look out for number one. All of our violence and evil, he took it upon himself as a servant. He gave his life so that you and I could have his life. He emptied himself for me, took the form of a servant, and served as unto the Lord for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before him? His inheritance. What's his inheritance? Me and you. Right? That's what he wants. His treasured possession. You are his treasure if you'll have him. And therefore God raised him up. The firstborn from among the dead. And seated him at the right hand of God above all rule and authority. And because of his own shed blood. He has purchased a people for himself. Who will share in a resurrection like his. And receive from the father. The inheritance of all things. So I want to ask you today. What's your hope? What do you have? Ultimately, everything that is not eternal, that we root our hopes in, will be stripped away like Viktor Frankl says. Today, do you see the empty streets or the rising sun? The evidence of the impact of death or the evidence of the death of death. And which one defines your life the most? Do you become like an animal and do whatever it takes to look out for number one? Even if the revelation of that is as small as a thing as hoarding toilet paper in Costco a few weeks ago. Or do you withdraw into drink and entertainment, drug abuse, whatever it takes to avoid dealing with the reality of our world, removing yourself into fantasies and past loves or would be glories. Does the hope of resurrection give you a rebirth into a whole new life? Looking forward to an imperishable inheritance that suffering not only cannot take away, but actually prepares us for a hope that gives us joy in the midst of it. Do you know this Jesus who loves you so much that he paid the ultimate price to give you that inheritance? I want you to know him today. I want to close with um, another quote from N.T. Wright from that same clip that we shared a little quote from earlier. He says, the God we believe in whom we see in Jesus is the God who takes the very worst thing that can possibly happen and transforms it into something extraordinary and brilliant and good and loving and creative. And so the death of Jesus is a paradigm for that. This is part of what it means to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. All the bad things that are going on, I can't solve them. I can't say what God is doing, but I can gather them all up. And when I come to the Lord's table, I can leave them there because the bread and the wine are the signs and the symbols of the fact that in the death of Jesus and then in his risen life, God takes all the brokenness of the world and he holds on to it in his love and his own grief. And our part is not to say, okay, God, now it's time for you to do this and this and this. No, our part is to leave those things there and trust him with them. And then to trust that good things will come out of this, even though at the moment we can only guess what those things might be. 
The death and resurrection of Jesus is a paradigm for how we view our situation today. Every situation. The bread and the cup. The ultimate reminder that God takes upon himself even the worst of our world's destructiveness and transforms it into glorious new life. Death doesn't get the last word. God does. So let's pray as we prepare to take these emblems. Father, if anyone here is despondent or despairing or bitter because of a situation that they're in, experiencing suffering right now, Lord, I will maybe never understand the depth of that experience. But what we can know is every one of us will face the same decisions, the, fa the same realities. We will experience the stripping away of all hopes. And in the end, do we become people made in God's image, human beings, somewhat like but set apart from the beasts that we were called to have dominion over? Or will we be dominated by the beast? Will we become the thing? that we were meant to transcend. Call us now to examine our own lives and our behaviors and our hopes. Call us back to the table, to the death and resurrection of Jesus, to the imperishable hope that you offer that gives us the ability to go forward with joy. Something that cannot perish though everything else does. It's in your name I pray. And if anyone here who's listening now doesn't have that relationship with you, that love for you, I pray they would receive you. I pray that they'd receive the new life that you offer them. I pray that they would immerse themselves and follow you through death into the new life that you offer through the decision to be baptized. I pray, Lord, that you would give them freedom and joy that they have never imagined they could experience. The paradigm shift, the new birth. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.